And now it's time on Flame CCR to take a look behind the studio's green door to find out who is in today's chat room. Midnight, one more night without sleeping. Watching till the morning comes creeping. Green door, what's that secret you're keeping? And now, are you listening? Well, I've just come up the apples and pears in Debenhams, and I'm going to take back to Dorking with me today the phrase, oh, it's a bit taters, taters in the mould, cold. Hello, my name is John Cheek. You're listening to Flame Radio. I'm delighted to say that once again I'm on the fifth floor of the cafe at Debenhams in Oxford Street because our special guest today is the BBC presenter, the producer, the all-round good guy or good lady, Hannah Mayo. And Hannah, straight away, can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, well, I suppose in my professional life I'm called Hannah Scott Joint. That's the first thing to know. Well, what I do now is I'm a voiceover artist... I'm the continuity announcer for BBC World News, so if you're listening to this somewhere around the world and you turn on your telly, the BBC station you'll get is BBC World News, and I'm the person that introduces all your programmes. I produce Pause for Thought on Radio 2, and I do whatever other kind of media work comes my way that sort of fits into life and work. I'm married, I'm the mother of a 10-year-old, I'm very involved in my local church, so life is quite a juggle, but largely a positive juggle. So that's me. Okay, Hannah, that's great. Let's go back to the beginning. And Hannah, I believe you're a child of the manse? Yes. Yes, I am. My dad, well, he died a few years ago, but before that, he was the Bishop of Winchester in the Church of England, large diocese in the southwest of England. And so I was born when he had just finished his training at Theological College, which was in Cudston in Oxfordshire. He stayed on there as curate to Robert Runcie, who was the principal at the time, who then became Archbishop of Canterbury. And so I was born at Theological College, as were my brothers. So those were our first few years, and then he became a vicar, and then on from that, vicar in a couple of places. Then he was in the St Albans Diocese as the Director of Ordinance and a Canon at the Cathedral. So my teenage years, my parish church was the Cathedral in St Albans. And then he became Bishop of Stafford and after eight years became Bishop of Winchester. So yes, absolutely. I mean, I absolutely grew up in the Church of England and I'm feeling incredibly grateful for that upbringing in a vicarage. So therefore, from the sounds of it, your upbringing was very satisfying. You were very much a child of the manse. In terms of actual faith, Hannah, if I can ask you a direct question, when did Jesus, as opposed to church or an institution, when did Jesus first become real for you? As a teenager, really, I was incredibly fortunate because, first of all, the School Christian Union was a really formative thing for me. It isn't for everyone, but it was for me. There were two wonderful girls called Margot and Bella. I remember them now. It was a very long time ago who ran the Christian Union, and they were enthusiastic and cool and fun. And I ended up going to a concert by a band that you will definitely remember, John, or know of, called the Mark Williamson Band when I was about 14 and there was a speaker afterwards as there often was at at Christian rock concerts then called Eric Delph who I'm sure you've also you know all about and he spoke he spoke at, at, at that concert and it was at that point that something became clear to me that hadn't before that something became personal the Mark Williamson band
And then, I'm not sure if it was exactly the same time, but anyway, around that time, I started going to something in St Albans, which was one of those extraordinary things that happens in communities and in church families. There were this lovely couple called Mr and Mrs Cox, and they lived in a very ordinary 1930s semi-detached house in St Albans. Two children... And they started by having a few young people, friends of their daughter, I think, round on a Sunday night to do some praying and do some singing. And it just grew and grew and grew. And so I went to what was known as Cox's every Sunday night for much of my teenage years. And there was a speaker every week. There was praying. There was singing. There was a lot of socialising. And we crammed into Mr. and Mrs. Cox's front room. And we didn't all fit. So people would be on the windowsills. In the summer, people would be out in the front garden with the windows open. They'd be sitting up the stairs. It was a wonderful kind of just entirely positive sort of way into faith, really, for a lot of people. I imagine there are a lot of people now who would say that that was the start of a faith journey for them. So I had the cathedral on the one side, which gave me one thing, and that was fantastic. And I'm so glad that I had that kind of bit of my faith journey as well. And then I had Cox's on the other side and all that that entailed. And I made lots of friends and that was a lot of my social life. So I was extremely fortunate. And, and of course, I had home life with parents who were fantastically devout and wonderful Christian people. And all that is involved in having a father who's a priest and therefore his home is his office and people coming to the house all the time. Yeah, I just feel incredibly fortunate about that, that I was sort of surrounded by so much faith and love. So in effect, Cox's for you was church. That was real church, although the cathedral gave you a sense of reverence. I think the cathedral gave me more than that because actually the cathedral in St Albans is a parish church, is actually a parish church, whereas a lot of cathedrals aren't classed as such. So actually, it gave me a huge amount as well. And I used to teach Sunday school. At the age of 14, I was teaching three-year-olds in Sunday school. And there was a lot going on as part of that. But it did give me the sort of wonderful traditions of the Anglican Church. It gave me liturgy. It gave me language. It gave me music, extraordinary music. And one sort of community. And then Cox's gave me another sort of Christian community. I had both. Aren't I lucky? It's brilliant. Well, I don't believe in luck. But I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Being a child of the manse, having a dad who is an ordained priest in the Church of England who went on to become a bishop, at times for you at school, did that make you perhaps maybe stand out a little bit? Were you treated differently? Were you ever teased or even bullied for being a child of the manse? No, I don't think I was, actually. I think I found it easier than maybe my brothers did. If you talk to them, they would have a different experience of it. But for me, I think because my faith was a part of me, it didn't feel like an issue. I was always really proud of my dad, really, really proud of him. I never felt kind of embarrassed by what he did. And looking back, that is fairly extraordinary, actually, as a teenager, but I just didn't. I remember him, um, oh, silly things, like being around town and seeing sounds terrible seeing a hearse go past with him sitting in the front with the undertaker spotting me and me waving at him and him feeling like he shouldn't laugh because he was you know you don't really do that under those circumstances but just things like that and things like the way that he did things I always was kind of in awe of I thought he, he you know the way he treated people the way he cared for people the way he led was so good that I was always incredibly proud of him I tell you one thing though I did realize some years later that one of my ambitions in life was to live in a house with a number rather than St Something's Vicarage. 
So in that sense, I wanted to be the same as everybody else. And I only realised that much later in life. I think when I did move into somewhere with a number in a road, I was kind of, yes, this is good. This is kind of what I wanted all my life. (laughs) This is heaven. This is heaven. But apart from that... I think I had it relatively easy from that point of view, but it may have been because actually faith was a part of my life anyway, so that made it okay. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if part of that, Hannah, is because your dad really practised what he preached. You said about the door was always open, people were always popping around or popping in, and I dare say they weren't just popping in for half a pound of sugar. They were popping in because they had nowhere else to sleep that night. And you saw the reality, the credibility of your dad's faith, your parents' faith. Yeah, it was a really traditional vicarage situation. And again, I think that was a real plus for me growing up, that we were expected as children of the vicarage to be able to relate to anybody and communicate with anybody. So whether that was a tramp that came to the door and was given a cheese sandwich and a cup of tea and had a chat... Or whether it was, you know, that one of my dad's churches was on a lovely estate, kind of stately home estate in a village, and the little church was in the grounds. And so we'd go there and then go to lunch in the big house afterwards, and we were expected to know how to behave there as well. And so I think that gave us a real kind of ability, I hope ability, to relate to a a huge range of people at all sorts of different stages of life and in all sorts of life situations and and yes absolutely they lived out their faith in that way there were always people in the house I mean to be honest you know a lot of them cried a lot that happens in a vicarage too so as you know when you're growing up as a child you learn to stay out of rooms that you shouldn't be in and to give people space and that's a good thing to understand that life isn't always rosy that people have real difficulties And also to understand that other people come first, that family life was really important, but actually the house was a place of welcome and a place where people could feel safe. And that certainly was something I've hung on to from growing up in a vicarage. Hannah, you say that even from an early age, your faith was just a part of you. I dare say as a teenager and about the age of 18, you went off to university and started to degree level. Do I get the feeling it might have been something to do with the media? Can you take us on from about that step in your life, please? Well, I can go back a little bit earlier than that because I started to get involved and interested in the media when I was about sort of 15, 16. And I think I was banging on about it so much that my mum practically begged the Director of Communications for the St Albans Diocese, Patrick Forbes, legendary radio man Patrick Forbes, to sort of take me on and teach me about radio because I really was going on about it quite a lot. So bless his heart, he did that. He used to produce and co-present a show on Chilton Radio, which was uh, based in Dunstable in Bedfordshire, and we lived in St Albans. And bless him, he took me on. He taught me about interviewing. The first actual broadcast I did was from a tent in the middle of Greenbelt Festival, a live show that I helped to present. So that was an amazing thing for him to allow me to do. Which year was that? Oh, now you're asking. It must have been about 84, I imagine, something like that. 84, 1984. And so I did that. And he sent me off to do interviews and to contribute to the programme. And actually, when I was learning to drive at the age of 17, my dear devoted parents used to get in the car with me at some ungodly hour on a Sunday morning for me to drive them to Dunstable for what it was called the travelling programme to kind of sit in on and contribute to this programme. They'd sit there with a book or something and then I'd drive back with them in the passenger seat to give me driving practice, which is so sweet. Looking back on it, I just think, wow, that's quite sacrificial, isn't it, really, on a Sunday morning with a busy day ahead. So all through my sixth form, that was what I was doing. So radio was really my kind of first love, even though I've gone on to do other things too. So based on that, and a, a, a probably rather too glowing reference from Patrick Forbes, I got a place at Canterbury, college in Canterbury, to do radio, film and television studies and religious studies as a joint honours degree because I was really interested in theology as well. So that's what I went off to do at the age of 18. Well, I did theology at Chester and you did media plus theology at Canterbury, which is a fabulous part of the world. I know that many of our listeners will not be familiar with Canterbury. Hannah, can you just tell us a little bit about Canterbury itself in relation to perhaps maybe the Church of England, but also what your first experiences were of being a fresher and at Canterbury? Mm, Yes, that's going back quite a long way and I'm not sure that I really should talk about being a fresher at Canterbury. (laughs) 
Well, Canterbury, obviously, the cathedral is the first thing people think of. And actually, I realised that most of the colleges I applied to were cathedral cities. I've always had a bit of a thing about cathedral cities. So I ended up in Canterbury, which was a wonderful place to spend three years. It really, really was. So the cathedral is very beautiful. It's, you know, the Archbishop of Canterbury is called that for a reason. That is his kind of seat, if you like. It's an amazing place to be. It's full of history. It's full of church history. It was a great place to study theology, as well as radio, film and television studies. So I loved being at Canterbury. I absolutely had a brilliant time. I didn't get involved in the Christian Union because it didn't kind of fit with what I wanted to be doing, to be honest, at college, which was getting on and living in a way that I hadn't before. And I don't regret that. I had a fantastic time and met some very wonderful people who are still my friends now. But the Christian bit didn't figure quite so strongly in those three years at university if I'm absolutely honest why was that I don't know I mean I think when you leave home and I'd had quite a sheltered makes it sound limited and I don't think it was limited but that's the only word I can think of sort of upbringing and teenage years of sort of mostly following the rules I think when I got to university I threw that off and thought you know what I'm just going to get on and be a student and I did I didn't do anything terrible but faith took a bit of a back seat I got my degree and I loved it. I loved it. It was great. I did radio. I did television. There was lots of practical stuff as well as the theology, which fascinated me and still does. But, you know, you come out of that full of enthusiasm about media and think, what on earth do I do next? I expect you want to know what I did next, don't you? (laughs) Well, I was just about to say, as a, a theologian myself, did you study Niebuhr? who looked at Christ and culture, including the media, as part of your studies? Nope, don't remember that at all. (laughs) No, no, I don't think I studied Neva. I definitely didn't, because I don't even know his name. So So they didn't teach him much at Canterbury, did they? No, it really wasn't slack. It It was a great degree. It was really good. But yeah, so I came out of that. And what do you then do with a theology slash media degree? What I did was start working for the Church of England newspaper as a reporter and researcher. So that was a few days a week. And I also used to work with a band called Fat and Frantic.
Yeah, I thought you might remember them. thought you might remember them. So I became friendly with them all the way through my kind of university time, through Greenbelt and various other things. And after I'd finished, their manager, who was a mate, said, why don't you come and... I mean, A, we were flatmates, so that was good. You know, we shared a flat in London. And B, he said, why don't you run the fan club and sell merchandise at our gigs? So I had a lovely time for about a year, splitting my time between the church being the newspaper and touring around the country with Fat and Frantic, selling a just extraordinary amount of T-shirts and badges. You've probably got some in your cupboard, haven't you? I think I might have been one of the people who sent off via mail order for various Fat and Frantic merchandise, and you probably handled my coupons and my checks in the post. Just for the sake of the listeners, you probably will be hearing one or two Fat and Frantic tracks during the course of this programme. I won't need to explain, just listen to the music. But Hannah, in the meantime, you were in London, recently graduated, and if you were working for the Church of England newspaper and for Fat and Frantic, I dare say you were back in church by then? Yeah, I was actually. Yes, I went to church at St Michael's Chester Square near Victoria, which is where several of the guys from Fat and Frantic went. So that was then my church. At some stage, did your paths cross with somebody who wasn't in Fat and Frantic but was very much part of church scenes in London with the name Jonathan, or did his name come later? As you mentioned, Greenbelt. The one I'm married to, that one. Yes, now, we met at Greenbelt, actually. We met in the sort of late 80s, I think, 1990, something like that. And I used to work in the press office at Greenbelt, and I did that for several years, and that was good fun. And someone I worked with was a friend of mine called Jackie, and she was going out with someone called Jonathan. So I did meet someone called Jonathan Mayo at that point, but only because he was my friend's boyfriend. So that was how I met him. And we didn't meet again till 10 years later at the BBC, uh, by which time neither of us were with anyone else, and, and we got together. So although Greenbelt was where we first met, our relationship didn't start till a decade after that. We do have a few things in common because I met my wife through Greenbelt and I worked in the press office at Greenbelt for a few years, but I think I probably came a lot longer after you did. But I first met you in the press office at Greenbelt when you were a visiting journalist and I used to sign you in and you were always one of the nicest journalists to us. There were some really arrogant, stuck-up journalists, I have to say, even from church publications. But you stood out as always one of the nicest and most friendliest people as I gave you your press pack on the first day. But I take it from the Church of England newspaper, your career in media really took off from there. Was it all religious media or did you have a variety? In fact, none of it, none of it was religious media. And yeah, my career did take off, but it went in a direction initially that I thought I wanted to be in but turned out not to be the case. So I started to work as a researcher for a TV production company after the Church of England newspaper, which is what I thought I wanted to do. 
So having done a lot of radio, I thought TV is the way I want to go. I want to be a researcher. And I started doing that. But I found it incredibly stressful, partly because of the person I was working for at the time and the company I was working for, mentioning no names. It wasn't what I envisaged, basically. In another context, it may have been. But in that context, it wasn't. And I was very unhappy doing that. So then it was kind of what happens now. This is what I thought I should be doing. So what happens? This isn't right. This doesn't fit. And at that point, I met an Australian called John and very quickly got married to him. And a lot of that came out of a point in my life where I was not happy and I didn't quite know what I should be doing or where I should be. We met and got married very quickly and it was disastrous. So we were married for two and a half years and it was a very unhappy two and a half years. And I came out of the media completely and ended up managing a clothes shop for tall women, like you do. We ended up back in St Albans, actually. And it was a very difficult time. Uh, and we ended up getting splitting up and getting divorced. And that was very tough for me, obviously, but also for my family. It wasn't what my parents envisaged for me. So it was tough for us all, and we all had to do some kind of disentangling of that and working out of what had happened and the situation that I'd got into. But coming out of that came at about the same time as I started to get back into radio. And I uh, started working for Three Counties Radio and I got a job as the person who organises their help desk, their action line. And that was great because it used all kinds of bits of me. It was doing radio, it was there in the newsroom. It was managing a team of people, volunteers, most of whom were people who had struggled to get work and this was a kind of programme for them to get back into work. So they were paid a small amount each week to come in and effectively do this job, but as a volunteer. And it was a kind of interim measure for people who hadn't worked for a while to help them get back into work. You know, it was something to get up for every morning, to come in and do something useful and do something interesting in an interesting place. And that was an exciting thing to do. It was setting up the help desk at Three Counties. And as part of that, I started presenting. I was presenting bits and bobs into programmes and from that was asked to present full-time. So then started presenting The Breakfast Show, which I did for a year and a half. Yeah, I know, kind of straight in the deep end there. I did for a year and a half with a wonderful man called John Radford, who's sadly no longer with us. And then I presented Drive Time for a year and a half. So then I was properly back into radio and that bit of life started again. And Hannah, just to go back a little bit, and I'm not prying, and these days the church is a lot less judgmental on the subject of divorce, which I'm pleased to say. During those two and a half years when you, you admitted that life was very dark... Did you find yourself asking that question, where is God in all this? God, where are you? Yes, yes, I did. And I think when you've been brought up as a Christian with a set of values and ways that you know are the right ways to live, when things in life are not fitting with that at all and you feel you've got into a situation that it's really hard to disentangle yourself from, there's also a sense of guilt, letting God down, letting the people around you down, letting yourself down. And certainly that forces you to ask all kinds of questions about, yeah, where God is. Is there a plan? Is this part of the plan? How have I got into this situation? And I think, I'm not sure you ever quite find the answers to that, to be honest. Um, but there needs to be healing and that healing happened very gradually over many years and part of that healing is to be honest with yourself about how you've got into the situation that you've got into and that can take time and I certainly did that over the subsequent years both in the context of my faith and also just in terms of asking myself those questions and trying to understand but yeah, I mean, there was no kind of blinding revelation of why all that had happened. I'm not sure there ever will be, but I also know that I grew as a person and as a person of faith through that time. When you're in dark places, you tend to throw yourself on God and also on the people who love you. And when those people are being Jesus to you, that inevitably builds your faith but sometimes it takes time to see that sometimes it's only in looking back that you can see that that's what was happening and that God was working through them to keep you moving to keep you going 
to kind of be in there with the healing. And what is important to remember is the fact that all of us, every one of us, is human. Every one of us makes mistakes, big mistakes, huge mistakes. And perhaps maybe whilst you were making some mistakes then at that stage in your life, Hannah, I was making loads of mistakes. The person next to me was making loads of mistakes in all of it. God is still for us. And God is saying, look, I just love you. And that's the most important thing at the moment. We can sort out the rest of the stuff later on. But just know that I love you. And sometimes when you're in those pits, you don't feel that. Inevitably. But there are sometimes in those pits where you feel it more keenly than you will ever feel it in any other bit of life. And I think it's at those times where you can sort of get a bit in touch with Jesus saying, why have you forsaken me? But you can also get in touch with the God is walking with me. God is here with me in this pit. And both those feelings are true and are valid and are healing, actually, because ultimately, I sort of don't know how you grow if you don't have the tough stuff. I don't regret it, any of it. I, you know, I wish I hadn't gone through that. I wish other people hadn't been hurt along the way. Of course, that would be lovely. But also, life is tough. Life has some rubbish in it. And, you know, you have to learn to... Uh, sort of walk through that knowing that ultimately you were never completely on your own even in the dark bits yeah and I do feel that it's sometimes only when you are in a place of healing when you can look back at all that that you can see the signs of God's presence and where the light broke through and be properly thankful for that and acknowledge that bless your heart Hannah, you were back in radio and things were on the up and up and they continued to be on the up and up. Can you give us perhaps maybe a little bit of a a potted history of what happened for the next few years on into that next stage? Because things did go very well for you in many ways, I'm pleased to say. Well, I mean, if I look back, it's been an interesting time, to be honest. It's not exactly been a linear career. It's gone in all sorts of different directions. So after Three Counties Radio, which was a wonderful, wonderful, probably, I suppose, in the end, four and a half years, it was time to move on and wasn't sure what to do. And in The Guardian, there was an advert, the Media Guardian, for continuity announcers at the BBC in London, on BBC One and BBC Two. And so I applied and I had an audition and I got a job. Fantastic. You know, it was brilliant. So I moved to London and learnt, trained to be a continuity announcer. Worked on BBC One and BBC Two, loved that. Odd job, you sit in a dark room with lots of screens in front of you for several hours at a time, introducing programmes. You hear people doing that all the time, that was me. And I did that for a few years until I realised that I didn't really want to sit in a dark room for the rest of my life, even though I absolutely loved the job. And there is a bizarre skill in learning to say things in 12 seconds. I know that's not evident the way I'm talking today, but seriously, I'm quite good at that. And so what next? Um, I was working on one of the launch announcers for BBC Choice, which then turned into BBC Three. And BBC Choice had all kinds of live programmes on it. And I started to be a stand-in presenter for one of them called Backstage. So that was my first experience of professional TV presenting. And it was great fun. It was live. It was a bit mad. Anything could happen. And it was great. So I did that for a bit and thought, this is actually where I want to be. So I gave up a BBC staff job. John, can you imagine? Imagine that. Gave up a BBC staff job to go freelance and got a job on Living TV as a kind of on-screen announcer, which lasted about seven or eight months, was busy, was fun. I learned loads. And then that job came to an end. And suddenly I was freelance and thought, oh, okay, still need to earn some money and pay the mortgage. So then just I started to do various things. I started to do more voiceovers, which I'd started to do at Three Counties Radio. And I got a job back announcing, doing BBC Four announcing. I was the announcer for BBC Four for about four years. And through that time, got some more TV presenting work. And I made a a several series for ITV, sort of lifestyle series. There was one about food, one about wine, all good, you know. There was one about... um, what, did, what else did we do? Uh, cathedral cities, taking me back to my cathedral cities in the south. And one about places with a royal connection in the south called By Royal Appointment. And several series. So probably did about four or five series for ITV. 
and also started announcing on BBC World News. And then after that, Pause for Thought came along as a producer, which was way out of my comfort zone, but someone believed that I could do it and told me I could and forced me to believe that too. And I've been doing that for about the last five or six years. Okay, at this point, I say you're listening to Flame Radio on 1521 Medium Wave and online, but we shall now be talking about the opposition, the BBC, BBC Radio 2, and Pause for Thought. And I'm sure many of the listeners to this programme will have heard Pause for Thought on Radio 2 at some stage. Uh, this is a very special pause for thought. Uh, please welcome the Reverend Bernadette Geraldine Granger, aka the Vicar of Dibley. Good morning. Good morning, Christopher. Nice to see you here today. Well, it's a great honour to be invited to come on Pause for Thought. And when I did Pause for Thought, the first thing I thought was, I quite fancy that Chris Evans, despite his horrible varicose veins. But then I thought, oh no, that's actually not the kind of thought they want at all. So I paused to think again, and this time I thought, well, I also inexplicably, alarmingly fancy Terry Wogan, but that was heading towards a certain hell. So I made myself a calming cup of tea and thought again, and I decided I would talk about the subject of the vote against women bishops last year. Reverend Granger. Hurrah! Absolutely. Hip, hip, hooray. Hip, hip, Hannah, just tell us more about it, because I'm dying to know, because I love Pause for Thought. Pause for Thought is an amazing thing. It's been on the BBC on Radio 2 for a very, very long time. It was produced in-house at the BBC, and then about six years ago, the BBC decided to put it out to tender. I work with a company called TBI Media, and uh, we got the contract to produce it. Now, initially, all we produced was the 5.45am live Pause for Thought on Vanessa Feltz's show. And then a couple of years after that, the whole lot went out to tender and we got that. So we also produce Pause for Thoughts that go out on Chris Evans' show at 20 past nine and the pre-recorded slots that go out through the night, which is the bit that I do. I'm one of the producers on the pre-recorded slots in the middle of the night. So that's what I do. It's an amazing kind of two minutes of radio. There are 17 slots a week on Radio 2. It's part of the BBC's commitment to religious broadcasting. They have to put a certain amount, a certain number of minutes a year, if you like, on air. And yeah, I mean, you know, we have contributors from across the faith groups, fabulous people who bring their own experience of life and faith to those slots. The ones I do in the middle of the night, we give our contributors a theme. And it's always fascinating to see and hear the different ways they interpret those themes from their own faith perspective. And I love that. Um, We hardly ever get identical pause for thoughts when we do we have to get whoever got their script in last to rewrite it but we get an extraordinary variety of scripts and of insights and I love that it's really exciting to see what people are going to come up with and it's really exciting to understand how other faiths come at things as well and I love that it's very very stimulating and I am glad there is something in my working life that feeds my soul this is it, pause for thought. There's a lot I do that has nothing to do with faith, church, spirituality at all, and that's fine. But I am really grateful that there is something in my working life. 
that fulfils that. As somebody who sort of used to do pools for thought on a number of occasions for BBC Essex, I know that there's different criteria depending on whatever the show is, whatever the producer is. But in your case, what sort of criteria do you have for contributors to follow? Being a Christian, you know, being an evangelist, my first thought is, why don't they preach the gospel? But it's not quite like that with pause for thought. What are you looking for from contributors? Well, you certainly can't preach the gospel in a way that a lot of people would imagine that they'd like to. That's not what it's for. It's about giving listeners a spiritual take on things and hopefully giving them something that they can hang on to during the day, something that is going to make an impact, something that's going to relate to them in their life, something that they can grab hold of and hang on to. And what I say to my contributors is the thing that does that is stories and it's personal stories, it's things about your own life. Stories are always the things that have grabbed people. You know, there's been storytelling as long as there's been people. And that's what people can latch on to. What's really important is there isn't some hideous gear change, clunky gear change in the middle. So they talk about a story from their own life and then, and it's so like what Jesus did. You know, that's just not okay because, you know, you want it to be a good piece of radio as well, a piece of radio that flows and that makes sense and that is crafted. And in the pre-recorded ones particularly, we really get a chance to do that. People send me scripts. I work with them on those scripts. We make it into a really good two-minute piece of radio which doesn't sound very much but actually you can get a huge amount of profoundness that's not a word profundity I don't like that word anyway you get the idea you can be profound in two minutes without being evangelistic at all it's about saying this is what I believe this is where I'm coming from on on this and putting that out there and if people want to discover more they can do that You can't ask somebody to do something. You can't challenge someone to do something. You can't tell somebody to do something. All you can do is say, this is me. This is what I believe. In my experience, this is how God works. And then leave it out there. That's what it's about. That's absolutely right. Pulse for Thought is not a party political broadcast. That's not what the BBC is there to do. And I'm sure in other broadcasting organisations, that's the same. But certainly that's not what the BBC is there to do. However, I think pause for thought is probably more in keeping with what Jesus did. You mentioned stories, Hannah, when Jesus preached, he always used analogies or parables. And it says in the New Testament, Jesus never preached without a parable, telling a story of people. So in one respect, perhaps maybe it is evangelistic but in the best possible sense? Well, I would say so. And that's how I do my faith. I'm not somebody who goes out and tells people what to believe or even talks a huge amount about my beliefs. I hope that it's in living a certain way that people will understand more about who Jesus is. I read something today on the tube about what a disciple is, and I just thought it was so fascinating. It says, at the heart of it, a disciple is someone who is growing to love in the same way that their master loves. And I like that because it shows that it's a process. You're growing to be able... Nobody can love as Jesus loved immediately. It's not possible. It's a process, isn't it? But actually, that's what we're there to do, is love as Jesus loved. I think that's a lifetime's work, actually. And I hope that that comes across in the things that I do, but also certainly in the Christian contributions to Pause for Thought, that actually people are showing the people that they are and the way that being a Christian has impacted them in their life. That's all you can do, really, is present that and people make of that what they will. You're not responsible for what then happens. It's not up to us. That bit's up to God. Hannah, time is marching on, so I've got just a couple of questions left for you. And leading on from what you were saying about some of the contributors to Pause for Thought, it does seem that stories and people's stories are very important to you. And I know that you often broadcast other people's stories on other radio stations as well. Do you have a real passion for stories? Are you fascinated by human interest stories? People's biographies, autobiographies? I read some of those. 
but I'm far more likely to listen to them. So, you know, the things I listen to on the radio are things which are people talking about themselves, like Desert Island Discs on Radio 4 or whatever it happens to be. But yes, I mean, you just alluded to a programme that I did on Premier Christian Radio for a couple of years called Traveller's Tales. And if we go back to the beginning where Patrick Forbes was my kind of mentor at the age of 16, it was a programme that he actually created on Premier and he did 700 shows. Extraordinary. I mean, nutcase. He's an amazing man. And when he decided to give it up, he said to me, I don't suppose you want to kind of do this. And so I and my exec producer pitched to Premier and got the gig to do it. And unfortunately, I didn't do nearly as many shows as he did. But the shows I did, I absolutely loved because they were exactly this. And this is why you do this as well, I'm absolutely sure, is because you like sitting, talking to people and hearing their stories. And there is an extraordinary power and joy in being able to do that and draw things out of people and understand more about how they tick and and where their faith has taken them where god has taken them on their faith journey so that was a real passion project for me which i absolutely love doing and would love to find other ways of of doing that yes and i guess hannah you're probably a little bit like me i find people fascinating i love to spend time just with people and getting to know them and getting to know their stories and getting to know about their life were there two or three in particular from traveler's tales that really stand out for you i mean one was a royal navy chaplain he's an amazing chap he used to be chaplain on hms ocean the big i don't think it's technically called an aircraft carrier that's what it looked like to me that's his parish that's pretty cool parish to have but he trained with the Marines. He was someone who'd, who'd done kind of Marine training, unlike a lot of chaplains. So he talked about what it was like to be in Afghanistan, working alongside people. He said, you'll never find an atheist in a foxhole. Because his experience was very much that when people are completely up against it, and we're talking life and death, they look for answers. They look for God. They might not call it God. But that's what they're looking for is meaning. And so from his point of view, he was there to be the kind of sounding block for that. And he talked about being there when soldiers were brought in mortally wounded and holding their head as they were operated on and died and saying those prayers. And it was incredibly moving to hear those stories from him and to understand a bit more about what that was like and what it must have been like to be a soldier in Afghanistan but yeah this man Stu extraordinary man but there are many chaplains in the army and the navy and the air force who who fulfill extraordinary purposes and missions and it's quite amazing job to do but that's certainly one that stuck out what else oh the other was an amazing chap called John Fieldsend who came out on kinder transport in the war as a seven eight year old And his was an amazing story because he ended up coming to Britain, being billeted with a Christian family. He was Jewish, obviously. Billeted with a Christian family. Over many years, it got to a point of feeling that he was a Christian and not a Jew and ended up being ordained and then had a complete breakdown in his 50s, married with children, with a parish, when he suddenly went, oh my goodness, I'm Jewish. And having to somehow make sense of his Christian faith, his Jewish identity and background in the context of having lost both his parents to Auschwitz and coming here just with his brother. How do you possibly disentangle all that? And he spoke incredibly movingly about how he had to really strip it all back and go back to the beginning and work out who he was, what his identity was in all those remarkably overwhelming contexts. So he was another one. And then there was Adrian Plass, obviously. (laughs) So, I mean, it was a wonderful time of talking to a whole variety of people. And I have to say, Hannah, Adrian Plass, I think, is still my most favourite interviewee (laughs) of all time. Time is marching on. Hannah, you've been very open, very honest, and you've talked about your life, about some of the dark times as well as the good times, and I'm grateful for that. One final question. We've mentioned him a lot, and I ask this of all my interviewees. This God, what's he like? What's he like? He is a creator God, and therefore, colour and passion and creativity come from him. I don't think enough attention is given to that in our lives, that we are creative, extraordinary beings 
Uh, he's a god of love who walks with us in the dark times and rejoices with us in the good times. Um, he is overall and underpins all and yet can somehow relate to all the things that happen to us as humans. It's a really difficult question to answer. I'd love to know what some of the other of your interviewees have said because I'm sure that's a really rubbish answer. And after this, I might give that a bit more thought. I don't know if any of that makes sense. But, uh, yeah, in the end, he is the foundation of everything and the conclusion of everything. And, you know, I and all of us are somehow walking the road in the middle of all that, somewhere in between. Yeah, gosh, what a difficult one to end on. You saved the difficult one to last. I don't know if that made any sense at all, but I hope some of it did. It certainly did. You're listening to Flame Radio with me, John Cheek. Our guest today has been the journalist, the broadcaster, the presenter, Hannah Mayo. Hannah, thank you very much. Thank you, John. a band called Fat and Frantic. My 
of the valley, the bright morning star. A band called Fat and Frantic. For the Lord your God is with you. I am not afraid. I am not dismayed. I'm walking in the faith and victory. Come on, walk in the faith and victory. For the Lord your God is with you. Do ba 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 do ba she down. Do ba 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 do ba she down. Do ba 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 do ba she down. Be bold, be strong, for the Lord your God is with you. Be bold, be strong, for the Lord your God is with you. I am not afraid, I am not dismayed. I'm walking in the faith and victory. Come on, walk in the faith and victory. For the Lord your God is with We've closed the chat room door, but please tune in next time to Flame CCR on 1521 Medium Wave for more from Green Door Studios chat room. Green Door! hope you enjoyed this program, which is under the copyright of Wirral Christian Media Limited. Details of the Flame CCR broadcasts and webcasts are on our website, www.flameradio.org. Thank you for listening. Flame.